groundbreakers, leaders, advocates. The rare disease community is full of people who inspire us through innovation, research, compassion, and a relentless spirit to affect positive change. Through the Rare Champions of Hope Awards, we honor and recognize true champions for rare disease. This year, we'll be recognizing leaders who have made a significant impact in advocacy, industry, medical care, and science, as well as up-and-coming rare disease leaders. The 2021 Champions of Hope event will be held live Thursday, November 18th in Philadelphia. It will also be live streamed so people can watch virtually. To register or for more information, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. Most people think of gene therapies as a way to replace a mutated gene with a copy that functions properly. But gene therapies are also being developed as a way to get the body to produce therapeutic proteins. AbV in September announced a strategic partnership with Regenex Bio to develop and commercialize the company's experimental gene therapy for wet age-related macular degeneration and other eye conditions. The one-time treatment delivered to the eye encodes for an antibody fragment designed to inhibit VEGF, like the antibodies ophthalmologists regularly inject into the eyes of patients to treat the condition. We spoke to Ken Mills, CEO of Regenex Bio, about wet-age macular degeneration, the company's agreement with AbbVie, and the potential to use gene therapy to alter the way patients with this and other eye conditions are treated. Ken, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about Regenex Bio. It's recently announced collaboration with AbbVie and how it's leveraging its gene therapy platform technology through partnerships. Perhaps we can begin with Regenex Bio's NAV technology platform. How limiting has the first generation of AV vectors been for gene therapy and, and what limits do they create? The history of Regenix Bio is a little bit about the history of AAV in general, in that um, you know there was there was the, the, when we think about first generation of AAV, there, there was really a paucity of AAVs. There were literally you know single integer number of them, six or less, that were being used you know in, in laboratories as as reagents. People were trying to sort of you know crack the code of transferring genes into cells to make medicines. And, you know, imagine you have sort of six options and only six, um, and each one of them was kind of in its own way, sort of really narrowly uh, focused. Uh, some of them worked good maybe for certain things, but not for others. And, and as a group in general, um, they were sort of self-limiting. I think that what that means for medicine is um, they didn't work well in a lot of different tissue targets, therefore they couldn't help gene therapy advance in a lot of diseases. Maybe they weren't very manufacturable. So you know, that, of course, is going to be a problem, even if you have some sort of 
evidence of success with the medicine, you can't make it or you can't make it efficiently or at reasonable cost, that's going to be a problem. And there were some of them even still, although I think AAV in general has been a class of medicines that have shown to be very safe. There were a few that had some signals that sort of raised some eyebrows or questions. Um, You know, our scientific founder, Jim Wilson at the University of Pennsylvania and and his laboratory were taking inventory of all of this, these, these six. In fact, they actually turned one of the six, ironically, the first one, AAV1, into a medicine um, or a vector for creating medicines. They even licensed it to companies who were using it. And and I think they saw a little bit about, you know, what what you were just referring to, Danny, which is, yeah, it's limited. Um, But the thing that struck them, and I think the thing that was really interesting was they, they sort of went to a place that others were not going to, which is, well, there must be more because there, you know, what is it in nature that exists only at an N of six? You know, I, I mean, I don't think anyone, like, imagine trees, there were only six of them or, you know, fish or something. like. So, you know, the concept of biodiversity crept in and uh, this laboratory and the NAV technology, which derives from licenses, uh, you know, based on the science of this laboratory, basically found that there were actually uh, hundreds Uh, more AAVs that were existing in nature. And so, you know, the limitations, again, I outlined, um, you know, the first AAVs were generally safe, uh, but they couldn't get to as many tissue targets as I think the ambition of scientists and clinicians had for gene therapy. Uh, Maybe they couldn't be manufactured as well as other medicines. And, um, you know, they just, uh, in clinical evidence, they weren't turning into things that were getting people excited and, and drawing new investment. So uh, it was technology that was limiting the field, at least around AAV. You've amassed a collection of more than 100 novel AAV vectors. What are the advantages of these vectors? Is it just having a, a large collection to draw from so you can find the right vector for the particular indication? Yeah, it's a little bit about the scale and having more options. You know, um, more than six certainly was a, a necessity, but um, it was also about the fact that as the characterization of these, you know, hundred or more new AAVs that were discovered came into focus, they had properties that were better than the pre-existing ones. Um, they were more manufacturable. They expressed more protein. Uh, as gene therapy medicines at lower doses. Uh, And importantly, and I think one of the the biggest attributes of the new technology, they could go places where the other technology could not, um, and they could get there safely and effectively. So, um, you know, by the time you added sort of safe, manufacturable, reproducible characteristics, but then expanded that to get to tissue targets um, like, for instance, you know, delivering something into uh, the intravascular space or, you know, through an IV infusion and having that gene therapy medicine find its all the way to cells in the central nervous system had never been seen before in any gene therapy, but there were some AAVs in the new collection, the NAV technology, that, that established that that could be done. That was transformative. Um, also putting uh, the, the new AAVs into uh, the space around the back of the eye um, allowed for 
uh, gene therapy medicines to uh, achieve changes in cell types um, that were basically where disease was occurring and that the other AAVs were doing nothing to. And, and this became something that was, I think, a real important uh, aha moment for the field is, we, you know, we now have something that we thought was safe. We've reinforced that it's safe. We now have something that's going to be manufacturable and continue to be safe. And we can put it into places and target diseases that we couldn't target before. Uh, This was really, I mean, I I wish I had been in the lab, the laboratories at that time. I thought I came to this later, but um, I wish I had been one of the people that was involved in seeing some of that first data because it must have been really special. Regenix Bio is developing its own gene therapies, but what role does partnering play in leveraging the value of the large number of vectors you've amassed? Well, historically, you know, Regenix Bio uh, was something that we formed, uh, a small group of us, uh, and really the focus was all about enablement or or partnering, if you will. The, the concept was. Um, we we saw the promise of this platform. And again, I, I sort of alluded to this, this data, this characterization, these discoveries had occurred. And maybe a few years later, I had the opportunity to sit in the office with, with Jim and some of his uh, you know, scientific colleagues and talk about their discoveries and, and sort of their findings. And you know, started to really get an impression that this new discovery platform was something that uh, needed more than just one company to take it forward. It, it needed an army. It needed a village. And so, you know, we formed Regenix Bio in some of the early chapters of the company in a way that was all about enablement and partnering. Um, and over a period of four or five years, we had, uh, during this chapter of the company, um, the opportunity to help form companies, uh, to license companies that were being formed, and to partner with large companies. And also over that time, you know, we saw a lot of new resource, capital resource, people resource come in to support the science that we had uh, brought into Regenix Bio and sort of fulfill that mission. Um, you know, a, a few notable examples, you know, for me of, of some of those circumstances and where they've gone. You know, what, one of those companies that we uh, helped license and support in early on has become a part of a large pharmaceutical company, Novartis, which has launched one of what I think is the most successful uh, gene therapy and specifically AAV gene therapy products that exists, Solgensma. It's a, it's a rare disease treatment for a disease called spinal muscular atrophy, and it's based entirely on delivery using uh, Regenix Nav technology, and one of our vectors called AAV9. Um, you know, that, it's really special to reflect back on the partnering days of the company and look at the fact that we have a medicine on the market that, um, you know, both has been, I think, successful in helping patients and families in, in a significant way in a rare community. It's also been economically successful uh, for investors and, and for Novartis and, and, and a number of stakeholders. Um, and we've had other companies as well that we've worked with, um, in, including today, we look at a roster of people that include large companies like Pfizer and Takeda as well as uh, companies like uh, Ultragenics, which is a well-known, you know, rare disease company that uh, almost entirely based a whole vertical of its research and development platform 
on Regenix biotechnology through acquisition of a company that we formed called Dimension. So, um, you know, I was really satisfied as I reflect back on those chapters of, uh, you know, the history of Regenix Bio, that sharing technology, enabling as many people as possible to put it into use, uh, you know, is good for patients. Um, and it's and it's been, I think, a, a successful model. Um, now, what I will say is, you know, after four or five years of seeing a lot of other companies get launched and and have, you know, the, the success that that I've alluded to, um, I wanted to get into the game. I wanted Regenix Bio to become a company that was also participating in drug development, not one that was just enabling it through other partners. Well, let's talk about the strategic partnership with AbbVie to develop and commercialize RGX314. This is an experimental gene therapy for wet age-related macular degeneration, diabetic neuropathy, and other chronic retinal diseases. For listeners not familiar with the condition, what is wet age-related macular degeneration? It's the most common form of of blindness uh, worldwide. It has incidence prevalence that's in the millions, uh, rather, and um, you know it continues to uh, be a very challenging disease to manage overall. Um, the the way that it manifests, it's it's, it's not necessarily something, Danny, that um, you know you inherit or that you're born with. It's you know age related. It um, is, is kind of references the fact that it sets in over time, and and what tends to occur is that a you know a a, a patient. Uh, maybe a family member that you know, you know, begins to, uh, you know, have some blurring of their vision. And, um, you know, it sort of creeps up on them a little bit out of nowhere. Um, you know, maybe they they hadn't noticed it before. And then and then it starts to worsen. And, you know, they, they can't see a computer screen anymore. They can't read a book anymore. They can't, uh, you know, see anything even even off in the distance. It really starts to inhibit their visual acuity, but, but in a blurred way, it's, it's not like they're completely, their field is going dark. It's just a significant uh, adjustment to their visual acuity. And they may go to the uh, physician, the optometrist or a specialist uh, ophthalmologist. And, um, you know, they may realize that even if they had corrective lenses, it's not changing things for them. Um, So this is not a normal part of aging. This is a diseased part. Of, of unfortunate, you know, uh, expansion of, of aging. And what's going on is at the back of the eye has started to develop new blood vessels. Um, you know, the hows and whys of that maybe, you know, are, are, you could speculate on, but, but that's what's going on. And those, those new blood vessels, um, you know, are there, may, you know, maybe to sort of oxygenate the tissue a little bit more and, and help it sort of sustain because it's, you know, the, the cell structure and the eye structure has, has gotten uh, older. Um, but then those blood vessels actually start to poke through the back of the eye, and then they start to leak fluid out of the back of the eye. And that's where the blurring of vision starts to come in. So, um, you know, people have characterized this, people far smarter than me, and developed treatments for it where they basically focus on that blood vessel formation and stop it from happening. And there are medicines today that do that. And they do it quite successfully. They can actually reestablish the vision that people had from the point in time they were diagnosed um, by giving them injections into their eyeball, which program blood vessels to basically go away. And we call those um, anti-VEGF treatments. There's a number of them that are available commercially on the market. The, The thing about the treatment paradigm here 
Danny, is we're, we're literally talking about the labeled indication is to take a visit every month to a doctor's office and get a needle stuck in your eyeball so that you can get this anti-VEGF therapy. And, um, you know, that ends up being something that's required chronically, recurrently, and it puts a significant burden on, of course, the patient and their family uh, for what becomes months and then years to continue to get this therapy that they're relying on to keep their vision stable. If they don't get those injections, then their vision continues to deteriorate. And in some cases, they don't get those injections for a really long period of time. It can deteriorate to a point where it can't be recovered. RGX314 is a one-time gene therapy. Unlike gene therapies that seek to provide a functional copy of a mutated gene, this actually encodes for a VEGF inhibitor. How does the therapy deliver it, and how does it work? Yeah, we, um, we've we been working to sort of change the definition of gene therapy a little bit here, right? I think it, it, it used to be that gene therapy, you know, was synonymous with just taking a gene out of the human genome and trying to get it back into a place where, um, you know, it's, it's needed. But, you know, you, you alluded to the fact that what we're actually doing is we're implanting a gene for a therapeutic protein, in our case, uh, you know, a monoclonal antibody. Now, monoclonal antibodies are, uh, you know, a class of, of drug treatments that are, of course, available uh, worldwide. You know, it's a multi-hundred billion dollar market. What we've done is we've co-opted the concept that, um, you know, those, those antibodies are actually made and, and, and translated proteins from genes themselves. If we put those genes inside of an AAV vector, put that AEV vector into the eye, we can have that protein uh, expressed basically continuously. And so we've replaced in principle the need for re-injecting a protein into the same place, in this case, the eye over and over again, with a one-time use of gene therapy as a medicine, um, using the ability for you know the gene to actually not be something that is uh, from the human genome, but a gene that encodes an antibody that was designed by someone. And that uh, is really special. I think this, this also communicates that uh, we're working on something that not only is literally expanding the definition of gene therapy, but it's expanding the application of gene therapy to things that are not just you know, genetic or inherited diseases, but to diseases that uh, you know, are caused by, by other things other than genetics. Well, walk me through the, the agreement with Advian. Does this contemplate a more active role for Regenex Bio than previous partnering deals? Abvi is um, a company that, you know, needs no introduction, right? I mean, they're one of the largest uh, healthcare companies in the world. They have uh, products that stretch across a number of therapeutic areas and indications, really important medicines, um, and they have an interest in one of their sort of business units in serving uh, the market for eye care. Um, now, we had been working on the development of RGX314 for years on our own. You know, we've been shouldering uh, the risk and the investment, working with a lot of partners at the patient and uh, physician level to uh, grow an understanding of whether or not this AAV gene therapy approach that I've been talking about with you um, can really make a difference for patients. We've reported data on this over the last several years, 
And I think we've concluded ourselves and we've sent a message to a lot of people in the community that this is a medicine that is ready to be taken to the next level and get to a lot of patients. And we're excited about that opportunity. We're a pretty small company here, Danny. We have about 350 unbelievable employees. We're headquartered in Maryland, but we have uh, people spread out throughout the country. Um, we're not a worldwide organization, but we're mighty in, in what we do. We're very strong in AAV gene therapy, uh, clinical trial development, and manufacturing of AAV. When we got to the point, and as a leader of a company that got to a point where we saw that the potential of one of our investigational drugs could reach millions of patients worldwide, we needed to find someone to help us do that, especially outside of the United States. Um, you know, we were able to have discussions with a group like AbbVie. They were able to, under agreements of confidentiality, evaluate our treatment, our data, talk to people that we work with, uh, including the physicians that have been part of our studies. And we structured a deal where we're going to get the best of what AbbVie is and can help to do to globalize this treatment and advance it uh, beyond the U.S., but also um, in ways with resources that probably would take us years to build. And we're going to continue to add the value that we've created at Regenics, not only the candidate itself, but our expertise in manufacturing AAV, our ability to navigate clinical development with AAV technology, because AbbVie had not worked materially in AAV uh, that I know of before we announced this partnership with them. Uh, we're incredibly excited. This is, this is the type of partnership that I think for a, a company our size, but more importantly, you know, for frankly, all stakeholders, you know, patients and, and families uh, with wet AMD or adjacent indications as well, that, that you really like to see because it, um, it allows a product, I think, you know, to get to market faster and in a lower risk way. Um, but still building on capabilities and, and respect of capabilities that are good from the large partner, AbbVie, and in our case, uh, at Regenix Bio. And, and what's known about RGX314 to date? What's known about it is with a single injection, in some cases, uh, we have patients who have been getting these injections uh, for years. Uh, that I alluded to as part of their treatment regimen. They've been needed to be driven by a, a caregiver or a family member to the doctor's office for four or five more years every month to get their injection. And they've come in to the clinical trials that we've uh, organized and designed, received an injection, a one-time treatment of RGX314, and have gone up to three years without needing any other kind of therapeutic intervention and maintained their vision. They have not had any loss of vision. In some cases, their vision has actually even improved. And again, you know, this is the type of profile that we were looking for from a gene therapy approach to take people that were on this burdensome, chronic reinjection therapy, but that was working well for them and convert them to something that was just as good, but obviously from a vision perspective, uh, much more convenient and a better quality of life. And, uh, you know, we've, we've aimed to convert patients who are diagnosed with wet AMD and are going to start receiving injections uh, that exist on the market today 
to funnel them into the opportunity to have a consideration for gene therapy. Um, what we found is that we think we can get maybe at least half the patients, maybe more in the world who are eligible to be receiving these types of injections, a one-time treatment of gene therapy. And if we can continue to show these types of durable effects that I've alluded to, one of our studies has followed patients uh, up to three years since we've started the study um, and, and zero injections. Uh, this is the type of transformative medicine that I think you know people uh, have been envisioning for gene therapy and the types of changes that we can bring. Um, we're excited. And once a patient is dosed, is there any way to modulate the amount of VEGF they're producing? We don't think that there's a reason to. Um, we think that we've, we've dialed in in a dose through uh, early studies that have told us that if we use a certain amount of gene therapy medicine, we can get patients to a place where all of them become in some form responsive and some of them become what we call complete responders. Those are the ones that I'm alluding to that completely go away with their injection. So, you know, there is some stratification here. We may end up with some patients that, you know, receiving monthly injections and now maybe they have to get an injection every six months, right? Um, that's still a dramatic improvement in terms of convenience and quality of life. In other cases, um, you know, again, we have patients that have had years and years of injections and we literally see them uh, in complete form, not needing to get additional injections to maintain their vision. Um, you know, this is, this is a, a time and a place where we're going to be evaluating this ourselves and now with AbbVie in late stage studies. And the outcomes of those studies are going to allow us uh, you know, pending the outcomes to, to bring a, a package forward to regulators like at the FDA and elsewhere worldwide to, to offer this medicine commercially. You're not alone in pursuing this approach. Where are you in relation to competitors? Yeah, we, we shouldn't be alone, right? I mean, this, I'm talking about a, a worldwide phenomena and, and something that should concern all of us in terms of you know, the risk of going blind and needing to get regular injections. I mean, imagine this, Danny, in parts of the world that are not set up like the way that we are in the United States to be able to get those types of treatments. Um, you know, who, people in, in rural areas, even in the United States, can't necessarily get somewhere every month. Um, what we have to say about competition is we're the first company that has moved into late stage development with this one-time gene therapy approach for wet age-related macular degeneration. And we think that that's really been something that has been about hard work, about good science, about a great plan and good people. Um, and, you know, I have to acknowledge that as we've grown the company, we've brought in a lot of, uh, you know, capital to support because this is a, a big opportunity, but it also requires a lot of capital to develop a medicine, a potential medicine like this. So, um, you know, we, we've seen other companies and other technologies enter uh, the space of evaluating things in patients clinically as well. Um, what we've seen is that the safety profile of RGX314, the response rates that we're seeing, and, and our views on the ability to manufacture high-quality products safely and scale it have differentiated us and allowed us to move into later stages of development. I, um, you know, I enjoy the fact that people are competing in the market 
Um, I, you know, acknowledge the fact that this is a large opportunity and one that needs to continue to see innovation occur. Right now, what we're seeing for gene therapy and RGX314 is uh, we're significantly out in front in a place where we're hopeful to bring this, uh, you know, really first of kind innovative medicine. And, you know, as we alluded to just a few minutes ago, we've got literally one of the largest medicines companies in the world as a partner to help us do this. So we feel really, um, you know, encouraged about uh, the success that we're setting up for ourselves to get this to patients. As you talk to payers, any sense how they value a therapy like RGX314, which can benefit multiple indications and provide a one-time administration rather than having patients get regular injections, which are expensive? Well, we're not in the market yet. So, you know, payer discussions are are sort of not something that's a regular part of our business. Um, But the logic that you just laid out isn't lost on people that we talk to that are part of the payer organizations or the caregiver organizations, right? They, They know and see what the infrastructure burden is, what the cost burden is, what the inventory burden is to support hundreds of thousands, millions of, of patients who need these anti-VEGF therapies. And they're, and they're interested and responsive to things that can change that paradigm of care. So, you know, I think that's what the, the uniqueness of gene therapy in a market um, like WET-AMD uh, really sets up is there's, there's already a really strong characterization of significant, um, you know, cost burden, significant need of treatment, but it's also working really well. I mean, I, you know, I have to acknowledge the fact that some of these approved products, these approved anti-VEGF agents, I mean, I've heard people on podium, retinal specialists that I think highly of, reflect back on the first time they saw data from, you know, 12 months of use of these repeat injectable products. And they said it it changed my life. It changed the way I could approach clinical care for these treatments uh, and for for my patients with wet AMD. And that was 15, 20 years ago, but it still set up this whole network and infrastructure of cost and burden to get these things to patients. It's been done and and people have that support. So imagine what a one-time treatment can do. Imagine how people are reflecting on the type of data that we're able to show and, and where this can go. Um, and, you know, payers are a part of that. They're going to see, they've seen the value in the existing chronic injectable market and it's paid for. And it's paid for because it provides significant value as medicines for patients with high unmet need. Gene therapy is going to fit in in a way that I think is even more unique and continue to address a significant unmet need. We recently f- featured PJ Brooks of NCATS on, on the show talking about the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium. I, while I had you, I wanted to ask you about Regenex Bio's participation in that. Uh, if you can, for listeners not familiar with it, what is the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium and, and what is Regenex Bio's role in that? Yeah, no, thank you for, for steering it in this direction. I, I you know, as you and I have, have discussed in the past, you know, rare diseases is an important part of our business and, and my personal focus for gene therapy and Regenix Bio. And, and, and PJ, as a, as a leader in, at the NIH in advocating for uh, research and development of products in rare diseases is a special person as well. So, um, you know, he, he approached us, as did uh, people from the FDA, including Peter Marks, about the concept of 
forming a consortium of you know researchers in government institutions and potentially even academic institutions as well as industry participants and and the bespoke gene therapy consortium was really about AAV gene therapy. Uh, it was about the scalability and the potential of AAV gene therapy um, in ways that maybe industry is not going to be able to have success with, particularly in, in this case, Annie. We've seen the impact of something like uh, Zolgensma, and, and you know, uh, it's been a very unique experience for Redenix Bio to have um, you know, a, a seat in, in being able to observe the, the benefit that a treatment like Zolgensma can have in spinal muscular atrophy. I think, you know, people like PJ and, and Peter Marks at the FDA who have been also able to view that or been complicit in uh, the advancement of that medicine for patients and families have reflected on that. They've reflected on the approvals of things, um, including like Luxterna, another, the other approved AAV gene therapy product, and said, those are markets that, um, you know, are sustainable for commercial business. But what about some of these ultra rare indications that we focus on at the NIH or in some of the academic centers that may not be that have small numbers of patients, but they can benefit from things like Zolgensma. They can benefit even from things like RGX314 in that companies have created infrastructure. They de-risk technology. And the cool thing about AAV is I, I like to think of it as um, it potentially, uh, you know, it, ha it has the concept of interchangeable parts, which is very unique in drug discovery. Usually I think of drug discovery with, um, you know, pills or reinjectable uh, treatments like biologics as it, that, that pill, that treatment is good for one thing or maybe a few things, but you can't really mess with it. You can't sort of change a lot of parts on it and, and then engineer it to work in something else. But with AAV gene therapy, um, we deliver something into the eye to treat a certain type of disease. Um, if we change only the gene out from what's inside of that medicine, we can potentially treat another disease and then another and then another. And suddenly everything we've invested in to understand how the medicine works, how to make it, how to make sure that it's safe scales to many, many other diseases. And in particular, in areas of high unmet need and small indications. Um, this is absolutely essential in my view and a responsible thing to do as a company involved in AAV gene therapy. And the Bespoke Gene Therapy Consortium is about, uh, you know, leaving no, uh, you know, patient, leaving no disease behind as we scale gene therapy in areas that are going to be successful commercially. We want to try and find a way to direct that investment of that science, that clinical experience, and, and the safe uh, manufacturing of products that may be commercial successes and direct them to patient populations that have significant unmet need but may not necessarily support a commercial business model. Um, this is great for us because, you know, we're based in Maryland. The NIH is just a few miles away. FDA is a few miles away. And I see other of our peer companies coming into our uh, in the midst of this consortium, both large and small companies, uh, to focus on this mission. And it makes me really proud to be a part of it, but also to see the type of leadership that is being assembled around the direction of where this goes. Because we, we want to have as much success, if I go back to you know the early chapters of Regenix Bio, sharing and partnership and enabling the technology to achieve as much success as possible is, it's kind of always been 
you know, the front of mind for me in terms of the mission. Ken Mills, CEO of Regenx Bio. Ken, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. Good to talk with you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.